Hello and welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, this episode is a continuation of my little mini-series uh, that I'm calling uh, Social Life in the Anthropocene. If you haven't started to listen to it, please jump back to the first episode of the mini-series, I think it's episode 61, um, and get up to speed. You're not going to miss out on any like spoilers or anything uh, if you just listen to this episode without knowing the previous ones, but I hope that they all build up to make some kind of general argument, and if you don't listen from the beginning, you won't get that general argument. So I'm going to have to go kind of quick because I did not budget my time very well this morning for some reason. Uh, I just uh, time went away from me and I have to record this podcast really quickly and then make my way to campus. Uh, So today uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, problems of the urban environment and solutions to those problems. Uh, Things that happen in these new, big, complicated, high energy, uh, high material culture cities and how people use these opportunities also to beautify their cities, to make them environments that are far more pleasant to live in. So we're just going to jump back a couple episodes, maybe 10 or so, and first part of the episode, we're going to talk about uh, the city as an environmental problem, particularly around smoke. So this is interesting for us uh, for two respects. First, it's interesting as part of this big narrative that we're talking about in how certain things about the modern life that we experience every day started out as responses to problems in newly large cities that used fossil fuels for energy. And so it's just interesting as part of that story. But it's also interesting because it deals directly with one of the key causal factors in making this world that we live in now seem ecologically different, and that is coal, burning coal. So London, for a really long time, used coal to heat its homes from about the 15th century, if not even earlier. The coal came from coal deposits up north that were readily accessible uh, by boat, which meant the heavy coal could be shipped by sea to London um, pretty cheaply. Uh, It was called sea coal. People didn't like burning coal. It was smelly. Uh, It's hard to handle. It's often, like, greasy and makes your hands black. But the city of London was really big, and its hinterland was getting increasingly settled, and that meant that wood was increasingly difficult to get to London, especially because you can use wood for tons of stuff, not just burning to heat your home, but you can use it to build your home, to build ships, to make tools, to do all sorts of stuff. And so coal started to outperform wood on price and started to be used as the fuel of the poor. And as it started to be used as a fuel for the poor, uh, it got cheaper because more people used it. There was a bigger market. And it started to be used for new, you know, other things, for industrial uses, uh, for boiling salt, for instance, or for tanning. Uh, But there was a problem in using coal because coal was stinky. Bitumous coal, which is the majority of coal in the English Isles, although not in Wales, uh, is 20% sulfur, and it's stinky. It leaves behind all this you know, crud that makes its industrial uses quite limited unless you have extra bits of technology to help out. And sometimes coal was a problem for people. Uh, The city of London was often quite smoky. 
However, back then, people didn't identify coal smoke as a problem. They thought of environmental damage as occurring from incomplete decomposition of organic compounds. This means, like, you know, icky, gucky smells. This is called the miasmatic theory of contagion. The idea is, is that you get sick by smelling a bad thing, by smelling something that's rotting. This is why uh, plagues happen, and this is why malaria happens. Malaria happens when you go to a swamp or a fen or some sort of, you know, gross wetland, and you smell the icky stuff that is there. Now, of course, we have different explanations that are probably much more accurate, uh, that, you know, plagues are caused by little microbes, and that uh, malaria is caused in wetlands because it's spread by mosquitoes. But back then they thought it was spread by smell, and the smell of burning coal was often thought to be an antidote to the bad smells of decomposing material. Similarly to if you know anything about uh, culture during the London Plague, you know that plague doctors would often, you know, stuff the noses of their weird masks with herbs and smoke tobacco to chase away the bad smell of the plague. But in the 19th century, coal use increased and the number of people in cities increased. Actually, per capita, uh, people in London burned about a ton of coal a year to heat their houses. But what was new was that coal was being used in a wide variety of industrial uses. Uh, people figured out how to use it to make iron in the middle of the 18th century. Uh, people started to use it to help out in brewing processes, uh, in uh, making glassworks as well. All of these processes started to use coal as an input, and it made meant that more and more coal was being burnt around London. And it started to be seen as a problem. It started to, you know, cause black soot to appear on buildings. Further north, where there were mountains of coal-fired factories, people started to notice that the surrounding woods were getting black. And people started to think maybe this burning of coal all the time isn't the best thing. Really curiously, earlier than this, in the middle of the 18th century, people identified burning coal and smokestacks and stuff as progress. There's a great painting of um, the city of Colebrookdale at night where you can see this 18th century vision of the coal-lit factory utopia. It's this beautiful and striking image of a city that looks almost lit up like it's daytime with these beautiful fires. It's very cool. It's my desktop background. And this shows a view of coal, a view of these new factories as something, you know, cutting edge. But in the 19th century, people started to worry about its effects on health. And there were increasing numbers of debates about this. People debated about whether it was industrial uses of coal or domestic uses of coal that were most prevalent. And they did tests by taking, you know, pictures of cities on Sunday when the factories were closed uh, and seeing how clear the air was and then taking pictures when the factories were running. Factory owners said, hey, coal isn't bad. When you see the smokestacks running, that is a symbol of our country's prosperity. What's going up out of those smokestacks? That's money. That's work. That's good for Britain. And these public debates on how to mitigate stuff led to a response from civil society to figure out ways in which people could start using resources differently. 
Um, there were environmental organizations called commons preservation societies that served to work to keep green land outside of development for the first time. These arose in the middle of the uh, 19th century. Um, similarly, there was the Society for the Protection of Ancient Buildings that sought to do two things. It sought to keep old buildings away from what they viewed as kind of an insatiable march of progress. And it also began to notice the problem of acid rain because all of this burning of sulfurous coal led to a bunch of sulfur dioxide in the atmosphere, which you know, combines with water to turn into sulfuric acid, which ate away at stonework. We talked about a bunch of, you know, cultural moments in this a couple episodes ago. The fact that the new Palace of Westminster, even before it was finished being built, was crumbling because of acid rain. The fact that Cleopatra's needle, which had stood for thousands of years in Egypt, as soon as it got brought into London, started to crumble to do with acid rain. But there were other civil society organizations that served to attempt to think about ways that the metropolis, these new problems of the metropolis, could be mitigated. Uh, people wanted to plant gardens. People wanted to improve the streets. People wanted to get people out of the city and into nature to, you know, refresh themselves. One moment that I want to highlight is the Smoke Abatement Society, who... Uh, were a group of uh, uh, people often drawn from the sanitary movement um, who wanted to make sure that industry wasn't pumping so much smoke into the air. One big moment is the smoke abatement exhibition, which happened in London in a year I don't remember because I probably need to relook at this book again. And it sought to show how there were alternatives to burning coal not only industrial alternatives, but consumer alternatives as well. One of the big things that they pushed were new kinds of stoves that didn't run on coal, but rather ran on gas. And if you think that this is not particularly interesting in the history of technology, I encourage you to run to your kitchen, and there's a decent chance that your stove is a gas stove, one of these stoves that's developed as an explicit response to uh, the smoke of burning coal. And even though I want to make this public discussion about the smoke of the city stand in for a wider history of people finally identifying uh, problems of burning a lot of fossil fuels, you have to point out that there's a number of things different about it. The first is that the current problem with burning fossil fuels is so hard to deal with in part because it's so invisible. When you turn on your car, you know that it, its exhaust has you know, carbon dioxide in it, but it looks clear. We know that the uh, you know, proportion of carbon dioxide in, in, in the atmosphere is changing, but that doesn't make the view of the sky look any different. But with coal smoke, the effects were immediate. You burn coal and you get smoke and it makes things look black. That way it's a little bit easier to make public campaigns to stop it because the blackness is really ugly. Uh, it makes you cough and feel bad. And it seems clearly to be a change in the environment. The other big problem in equating this campaign against coal smoke with current problems about global warming is in the time period 
of when the harm is meant to take place. Acid rain is fairly immediate. You know, it melts through buildings pretty quickly. Getting people having crappy lungs because they're burning coal smoke happens over the relatively short span of a lifetime. Blackening of buildings, destruction of trees, all of these things you can see happen, and you can imagine the bad effects happening to you. And it's easier to make a political story about changing these things when you can imagine its direct effects. The problem with global warming is that there seems to be no clear connection between individual actions and global actions. A single burning of a liter of gasoline does not make the temperature rise. And it won't even make the temperature rise for hundreds of years, right? It's the accumulation of carbon dioxide over centuries that is the problem. It's the fact that carbon dioxide lasts in the air for hundreds of years. I just read that a quarter of carbon dioxide actually gets up way into the stratosphere and stays there forever. But what's missing is this close, timely link between an action and its consequence. So next I want to talk specifically about the ways that people improved their cities. They made their cities nicer, even in the face of uh, a lot of urban pollution, not just coal smoke, but sewage, crowds, uh, public smoke, people talking in the street, general nuisances, strangers. So I want to talk about light and water, uh, these infrastructure things that we often take for granted. So with light, we have two different processes of lighting the city. The first is actually lighting the city itself, making street lights. And this was something that was done widely in large cities in the 18th century, particularly capitals. Um, there were lots of schemes for building street lights in Paris, schemes that were pushed by royal ministers as a way of making their city safe and ordered and as brilliant as the government that ran them. The problem is, is that, you know, Britain does not have as clear a sense of central government authority, and the London streets went by and large unlit by government authority. If you have streetlights in London um, in the 18th century and a part of the 19th century, they happened because uh, people uh, got together and built them themselves in, in, through local authorities. And so... London, even though it was the biggest city in the world, even though the city of London for me is the heart of global capital, it was a darker city than um, other large cities of, of comparable size and import. At night in the 18th century, if you wanted to you know, go out from the pub and go home, you'd often hire a young boy who would be carrying a burning brand to help lead you through the street, to help protect you from the uh, vicious criminals who might be lurking in the darkness waiting for drunk middle-class people to stumble home drunk uh, in the middle of the night. And then when we talk about lighting of the home, there's two big developments. Uh, first, before these developments, people lit their houses through candlelight. And I really want to emphasize just how crummy darkness is and how 
bad a solution to darkness candlelight is. So we take it for granted that when we want light, we can have it. You stumble a couple of feet to a light switch and bam, instantly you have clean, clear, you know, perfect looking light. But before the adoption of electric lights, uh, this was not to be. People actually you know, lived a ton of their lives in darkness. And this was often disturbing. Things are scarier in the dark. It's harder to find things. You can't work or read in the dark. Uh, you often uh, are under threat from the natural world in the dark. The darkness, especially in winter, and remember, Britain is in much higher latitudes than, than America generally, so they have much, you know, darker winters where the sun shines much less as a proportion of the day in the winter the darkness can just be depressing and candles which by and large were the main way that people chased away the darkness uh, before the 19th century candles are often an imperfect solution they flickered which today we think of as very pretty but uh, the uneven light source made it harder to work and harder to read furthermore before developments in the 19th century candle wicks needed to be trimmed every once in a while which meant that every you know five ten minutes you'd have to get up and take a knife and cut away part of the wick to make sure that the candle wouldn't go out just imagine how it would feel if you were in your home reading a book but you had to get up every 10 minutes to you know reconnect the wires of your light to make sure that the light wouldn't go out and they were also smoky if you put out a candle, it would, you know, sometimes smoke up a bit and that could damage stuff and make you cough and it wasn't very pleasant. So two improvements. The first uh, is the change from candles to whale oil. Whale oil was wonderful. It burned bright and clean. It burned for a long time. It didn't have a grubby smell. But it was incredibly expensive, you know, fit only for the middle and upper classes, and it came from whales. I mean, whales were really hard to catch. Uh, whaling ships would often, you know, go on journeys of three, four years to catch these big, gigantic animals and, like, strip out their fat and render it into oil for use in lamps. And so it wasn't uh, a perfect solution to the problem of urban lighting. In Britain, the perfect solution was, predictably, coal. Um, the u People used coal gas to light their houses and their theaters and stuff like that. The idea was is that you would take coal and you'd heat it up with coal, and from that there would be this volatile gas that would get released that you could uh, burn. And this would be captured and then run through pipes that would go to people's houses. And then when they wanted to light something, they would light, uh, they'd, you know, turn the knob on the gas and light the gas, and that would be their light. Um, and this was sometimes, you know, a problem. The coal gas was often smelly. The actual coal gas, uh, 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 you know, factories needed to be placed relatively near to houses because the pipes would leak a lot. And, you know, if you think about it, there's a lot of uh, latitude for industrial accidents, for large explosions, for poisonings, for other, you know, negative externalities like that. But coal gas did serve to make the urban home a little bit more comfortable. With coal gas running through the house, you could easily, you know, walk up and turn on a light and have 
light in your house whenever you wanted it. And that, I think, gave a change to the way that people viewed the world. Increasingly in this story, we're getting the sense in which human technological endeavor can triumph over seasonal and natural rhythms that used to define a person's life. And here we have something where this seasonal and natural rhythm at its very base is being chased away by technology. If there's any rhythm to a person's life, it is the rhythm of day and night. And here, because of coal, a ton of people were able for some time to chase away the darkness, to get extra work done, to have dinner parties, to read, to think. And second, I want to talk a little bit about water. We might talk a more about it later this afternoon where uh, I talk explicitly about sewage. But a big story I want to tell is simply how London got its water. How did people get their water, usually? Well, people got wells, or you lived next to a river and could drink the river water, or, uh, I mean, that was about it. However, as London grew, it quickly outpaced the supply of possible water. One, people started to live further and further away from the River Thames, and so they couldn't just walk over there. And furthermore, a lot of the smaller tributaries that were being um, run through the city were being used up. People were taking all the water for themselves and drinking it and using it for washing and stuff like that. And so in the 16th century, the New River Company was formed, and it had this ambitious project to build an aqueduct hundreds of miles away and divert the course of a river so that it would go to London and, uh, you know, supply people's homes with water. And if you think that was crazy, well, it worked. And the New River still remains one of London's sources of water today. And as London continued to grow, there were other companies that were formed. Private companies that got charters from the government um, to get provisions of water to the city. In the 19th century, the supply of water in London was generally good, but the quality of water was getting worse. But then things started to change in the turn of the 19th century when a maverick civil engineer named Ralph Dodd made a ton of wildcat pumping firms to serve underserved areas. And this led to a cycle of competition between the different water provisioning boards um, who uh, would undercut one another on prices and get into kind of what I might call water wars, where they would engage in door-to-door -door canvassing, trying to get people to hook up to their water pipe system, where workers would get into fights on the streets about competing different water companies. Um, in 1817, the solution was formed, and that was cartelization. There was a general agreement between all of these private companies that each area was a private monopoly and that they would not serve to undercut one another in provisioning water. This might have been good for the water companies, but it meant expensive water for people. The story of water then throughout the rest of the 19th century is that after the 1850s and the cholera epidemics that ripped through London, people recognized water not as this thing that could be served by private interests, but rather as something that it was in the government's interest to uh, oversee. 
The first big step was in 1852 when the Metropolis Water Act passed, which uh, forced all of these companies to get better water quality. And uh, there was a um, project to change the actual sewers, uh, which we're going to talk about this afternoon. And slowly and slowly, there was ever-tightening regulation put on these water companies to serve the public interest. After 1871, for instance, the companies had to submit public accounts to the government. Uh, this made them keep public accounts, but it also meant that everybody could see what they were spending their money on and how much money they were making. And this forced them to work faster to improve their own water supplies. Um, similarly, around this time, they appoint a water examiner who uh, reports annually to Parliament about how the water boards are doing in actually getting water supplies to the people. And the long and short of it is over the 19th century, an increasing number of people in London get water into their homes, and this water is increasingly clean. And this is an incredibly important development because taking water from place to place is difficult and time-consuming and necessary. And like most difficult, time-consuming and necessary tasks, it became heavily gendered. It became something that women had to do to keep the domestic system running. And once you get indoor plumbing in a lot of houses, it frees up female time to do other stuff. To imagine, for instance, leaving the home, to uh, spend more time cooking and cleaning and interacting with children and thinking and reading and talking. It is one of those developments that help people start to emancipate themselves from the home. And in these two stories, the story of the spread of gaslight and the story of the spread of public water, I want to emphasize here that something that we take for granted as something natural and normal, light and water, here is actually a story of private interests competing with one another. And then once the necessity of these uh, amenities becomes recognized, we have a process of slow government takeover. Oh, and I forgot to mention why uh, coal actually stopped being used so much, why there was finally abatement of smoke that the Smoke Abatement Society wanted to encourage. And I just remember it, and it's, it's kind of ironic, so I'm going to break uh, the narrative of the course and just mention it. It was oil, petrol, clean burning petrol, the future. Anyway, thanks very much for listening to this episode of Making of Historian. Um, I have to thank Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, tweet about us, drop us on Reddit, do all those sorts of things. Um, and I'll come back to you guys this afternoon with hopefully something a little bit more coherent um, about sewage and other urban disabilities. <laughs>